Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from the Maine Community Foundation, working with donors and other partners to improve the quality of life for all Maine people on the web at maincf.org. The time is 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online at weru.org. Talk of the Towns with your host Ron Beard is up next. and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns began in 1993 with support from University of Maine Cooperative Extension. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Acadia National Park is one of the most heavily visited places in Maine, with upwards of 3 million visitors annually. How does it both welcome so many people and protect the natural and cultural resources under its stewardship? Well, this morning we're going to talk about that with Kevin Schneider, Acadia's superintendent, Laura Cohen, chief of interpretation, and David McDonald, president of Friends of Acadia. And later on, we'll um, ask you to participate in this um, live uh, call-in program. Well, let's get started by asking each of you to talk about your journey to uh, Acadia. Um, Kevin, how did you um, uh, kind of come to Acadia? What was your background and career that led you to Acadia? Well, good morning, Ron. And I, I uh, first visited Acadia National Park while I was a college student, actually, back in 1995, I think it was. And it was on my way to Baxter State Park. We camped at Blackwoods Campground, and it was in May, so it was quite a rainy May that we had. And uh, we've had a, a great time, though, and um, and then I came again in 1999 when I had started working for the National Park Service in our mm-hmm. Washington, D.C. office, and I had the honor of uh, participating in a couple of news conferences that summer, one with Friends of Acadia to endow the park's trails and celebrate that endowment, and then the second was the launching of the Island Explorer, and at that time, I kind of scratched my head, and I said, you know, Acadia is a place I would love to work <laughs> And I wound up marrying a girl from Bangor uh, and spent most of my Park Service career in the West. She moved West, but then I heard that this job was going to come open. And I actually heard about that the week after I had come back from visiting Acadia that summer. That was the summer of 2015. And I, I said to Kate, my wife, I said, maybe we ought to throw a hat in the ring for Acadia. It's a pretty special place. Great. And uh, she wasn't hard to talk into <laughs> that decision. Well, Laura, you're new to your position, but you've been um, the acting um, chief of interpretation for a few months. So how did you get here? Oh, thanks, Ron. Uh, so I came here first about 15 years ago when I was living in Vermont. I was working at a small national park there, uh, Marsh Billings Rockefeller National Historical Site. And um, I wanted to take a trip to Nova Scotia and came via Maine mm. and uh, spent about a week and a half in May, like Kevin. Uh, it rained the entire time, uh, but there was just something magical about this place. And as I continued my Park Service career, I uh, went down to Virginia. Virginia and spent some time in D.C. and Hawaii and um, 
found myself always comparing where I was to Acadia and knew it was eventually a goal of mine to get back up here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I actually came here about a year ago. I was lucky enough to be working in a um, remote work position as a digital strategist for our national office uh, and uh, was able to find my way here. Uh, when the position came open of chief of interpretation, I was able to come in and help the park out over the course of the summer um, and learn learn a little bit uh, and then applied for the, full, the position full time uh, and came on about a week and a half ago. Oh, great. Great. Well, glad you're here and here um, on Talk of the Towns. Uh, David McDonald, uh, president of Friends of Acadia, what's your, your path to, to your position? Good morning, Ron. Thank you. Um, I have my parents to thank for putting me <laughs> on the path. They they moved our family here when I was about 10. Uh-huh. I didn't have a say in it, but, boy, they made a great choice. <laughs> Good and, choice. Uh, uh, I was lucky enough to grow up on the island, go to school here, uh, went away for a few years for college, and mm-hmm. I lived in, you know, northern New England, southern, southern Maine for a few years, but it was not the same. You mm-hmm. know, I realized that I had been uniquely spoiled growing up next to a national park, and I sure. had to get back. It, sure. it gets in your blood and it gets in your bones. And so I have been lucky enough to come back, as you know, worked in land conservation with Maine Coast Heritage Trust for many years. And then about seven years ago, this job opened up, and I've been at Friends of Acadia since then. So right. it's home. It's sure. where my family is, my parents, my kids. So right. I feel very lucky. Great. And and um, starting with you, a little bit more about the, the, the mission of Friends of Acadia um, as a support to um, sure. both Acadia and national parks. Right, right. Well, our role is to help preserve and protect this place that we love so much. And Kevin and Laura and their team do a great job, but they need help. And there's a lot of people who want to help. So they can do that through Friends of Acadia. Mm. Uh, many of our members are volunteers. Many are members. They support us financially. Many support us with their voice, speaking up on issues that are important with elected officials or with, with Kevin and his team. So we have a very broad definition of what it means to be a, a friend of Acadia. Mm. And there's a lot of ways you can pitch in um, by the choices you make, how you visit the park, um, how to help take care of it. You mm-hmm. know, this this park is underfunded, unfortunately, uh, from Congress. So philanthropy has certainly been a big part of our role. But increasingly, it has to do with stewardship and the actions you take and, and, and helping out in ways that are beyond financial support. So mm-hmm. we've got about 5,000 members. Um, we're growing, and uh, the need, unfortunately, has not gone away. So mm-hmm. um, it's it's a great organization, and uh, the the best part about my job is the people I get to work with, our members and and the team at the park. Sure. Well, Kevin, you've got a um, a job that's complex, um, but it really boils down to that notion of of the the park's mission of making sure that the resources are protected and giving people who visit um, a positive experience. When you came to Acadia, how did you find that challenge? What did you kind of observe as you as you first stepped into the, your position now? Well, I think we're fortunate that we do have a very clear mission, as you articulated, Ron. Mm-hmm. And that is to preserve the park in an unimpaired condition while allowing for people to enjoy it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Acadia's visitation has grown by 59% over a 10-year period from 2006 to 2016. And so that creates some challenges. I think it's a good thing that people are discovering their national parks and Mm -hmm. enjoying them. But we want to make sure that everyone does have a really high-quality experience. And so... You know, that is among the challenges that we're dealing with is trying to make sure that the park still retains 
those inspirational qualities of what make it so special, uh, that it's the kind of place people come back to f- throughout their lives uh, because it is so special. Um, and so how do, we, how do we do that in the context of visitation that has gone from, say, two and a 2.3 million visitors a year, uh, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, to now more than 3.5 million visitors in a year. Um, these, are, these are good problems to have, right, but, right. but they are challenges. Sure. And is that visitation spread out through the year, or is it mostly in the summer? What's, the, what's that pattern looking like? Yeah, of course. We, we uh, you know, see most of our visitors coming in the, in the summer months, you know, June, July, August, September. But now even October is, is, is quite a busy month for mm-hmm. us with some of our busiest days of the year being uh, in October as, as people come to see the fall colors. And, and 10 or 15 years ago, you know, October was a sleepy month in Acadia. The season really ran from about July 4th to Labor Day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we've really seen that season expand um, into the shoulders, which is, again, a, I think a good thing for the communities, uh, for the park, for people, gives people another chance to see the park in, in different conditions. You know, one of my favorite times in Acadia is winter. And, uh, you know, I love to be out cross-country skiing on the carriage roads. To me, that's uh, about as good as it can get. Sure. Uh, so the park is beautiful all times of the year. Right. And how, how do you kind of know um, when visitor experience is impacted uh, by numbers or behavior? What, what, what's your gauge of how that is, is, is trending? Well, you know, we have had to do things like close the top of Cadillac Mountain, uh, because the summit becomes so congested. Uh, for example, on a sort of typical beautiful summer day, we'll have 500 cars at the top of Cadillac Mountain. There's only 150 parking spaces. So that means you literally have 350 cars parked everywhere. There's not a rock parked on the grass. Uh, you know, that's not the kind of experience we want to provide for our visitors. Um, or a visitor tries to go up Cadillac Mountain and they, they think they're going to go up and maybe they've had, you know, had lunch and now the next thing on their visit is to go up Cadillac and they find the road is closed. And again, that's not a high-quality experience. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to be able to provide more certainty for visitors and, and, and really a better, more predictable uh, experience so that they know they can achieve their objective or, or, or do something different, you know, mm-hmm. find a different way to get to the top of Cadillac or maybe come at a different time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so really that's, that's part of the challenge is just managing that, that congestion and that sort of availability of parking. Mm-hmm. Um, Laura, your position is really about visitor experience. At least um, my memories of, of coming to Acadia as a as a young uh, child, um, it was the ranger led programs. It was the uh, campfire programs. Uh, those are the signature programs that I remember. What would I be surprised if I were to visit Acadia now in terms of the kinds of visitor uh, interpretative programs? Yeah. Um, I think a lot of of what surprised me coming uh, was how much interpretation has changed and how much expectation and visitor experiences have changed. Uh, So I'm I'm relatively new, so I don't know, you know, all the history of the programs that were done here, but I do know from just a a brief look that I took back in our photos, I saw a – a photograph of a ranger tide pooling yes. from 1938. Uh, you know, so talk about a great tradition that we're we're joining here, uh, being able to carry on this tradition of these programs. Um, so I think now uh, we have to be a lot more flexible in our programming. We're doing sort of pop up programs where we know people are going to be, or in some places where we hope that we can have quiet moments with visitors. Um, and I think a lot of the um, types of programs that we are going to be doing is is going to be changing and and being a lot more flexible like that. 
Are there are there national or international trends in interpretation that you've kind of looked at and said, um, I wonder if we could experiment with some of that here? Yeah, I think I think uh, a lot of the trends are moving more towards engagement and less towards kind of a sage on the stage type right. of, of program uh, where we're really trying to create meaningful, meaningful experiences with people. So whether that's activities uh, or conversations with each other, uh, allowing visitors to learn and converse with each other, uh, where we are sort of facilitating or shaping the experience and not necessarily uh, interact, you know, directing it uh, completely. Uh, I think the other big uh, change that's really sort of come over is the use of technology. Uh, and it's something I think that we're definitely still feeling out as, as technology is growing and changing. Uh, but sometimes, uh, you know, there may be an interpretive experience that maybe isn't with a ranger or uh, instead uses uh, whether it's your phone or some sort of technology on the ground to uh, bring certain experiences to you. Uh, I think one of the great benefits of that can be that we can start to have park experiences not even in the park. So if there are people, I always think to, you know, a kid sitting in a window in Washington, D.C. somewhere putting on some headphones and listening to, um, you know, the sound of, of the ocean at Acadia. And what what is that? Is that something that we could consider a park experience uh, and maybe entice that, that kid that never thought about visiting the ocean to come to Acadia and, and hear that. So I think there's a lot of more sort of diversity that we're going to be bringing into the program. Mm. And um, and as you're kind of getting to know Acadia, what is it that you're interpreting? um, I can imagine the natural world, but what else? Oh, there's so much. Uh, It's one of the great things that uh, is both exciting and surprising to me uh, coming here is, uh, you know, the layers of of, things that we can talk about, the layers of, of ways that we can reach people. Uh, I kind of like to think about Acadia um, as a supermodel with a PhD. Uh, you know, so you can sort of immediately right off the bat appreciate its beauty. Uh, but you want to listen to it. You want to go deeper. You want to have it sort of inform you. And there's all these sorts of, of layers that you can really explore. Um, so some of my, my you know, initial impressions is that there's some really great work with um, sort of engineering and architecture that goes along with the the park road system and the carriage road system and the trails, which are just one of the best resources in the country. Um, And I think being able to uh, have people know and connect to the community the way that that we know, those that live here know Acadia does, uh, but that maybe isn't something that visitors necessarily know of right off the bat. Right. And history as well? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm uh, my my greatest... um, my feeling of the greatest impressions that we make on visitors is when we're able to sort of bring the people stories and the place stories together. Mm. Uh, and so I think uh, history plays a lot a lot into that. And there's fascinating history here, whether it's the fire of 1947 or the way that the park came together uh, through philanthropy and private donations. Uh, it really is an, an endless well. Mm. Kevin, we've talked a little bit about the overall mission. Um, Laura's talked about the interpretive role. What are the other kinds of chief functions within the park that you kind of manage or make sure are managed? Yeah, there's actually a lot that goes on at the park that is sort of under the surface that visitors Mm -hmm. don't Mm -hmm. see. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a huge asset portfolio, things like trails, buildings, carriage roads. You know, those all have to be maintained Mm -hmm. and they take people to maintain them. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we have a, a 
uh, a science program at Acadia where we're looking at uh, how the impacts of climate change into the future are going to affect Acadia's forests. That's really important. We have endangered bats in the park uh, that are suffering from white nose syndrome. And so trying to understand, you know, how do we uh, create a, a more resilient population of bats, which really play a very important role in ecosystem function. Um, so, you know, there's a diversity of sort of careers at a place like Acadia, and then including, you know, an administrative function to make sure people get paid every two weeks and make sure the, the you know, the checks don't bounce uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, so it's it really is a diverse operation. We have law enforcement rangers. We have a dispatch office. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have fee collectors. So it, it it is a very diverse operation. We depend on, you know, a large number of seasonals. We hire anywhere from 120 to 150 seasonals a year. And we have about 80 staff that work year-round at the park. So, um, you know, it, it takes people mm-hmm. to make Acadia National Park serve those 3.5 million uh, visitors every year. Mm. You mentioned maintenance, and we can involve David in this conversation too. And um, it's, it's what, something called deferred maintenance or maintenance that hasn't been attended to and you've got a backlog. Tell us a little bit about what that looks like. Yeah, we, we have about a $65 million backlog in deferred maintenance. And what would, what would that be in years? <laughs> I mean, how, how much do you spend on maintenance in a year, for instance, roughly? How many years of maintenance are we behind? <laughs> yeah, so we spend about $3 million to operate the park, to paint the walls that we need to paint, to take out the trash, just basic operations for facility management. Um, And then we get anywhere from, you know, $5 million or so, uh, plus or minus, to do sort of big projects, you know, maybe replace a roof or replace windows on a building. Um, So, you know, that backlog is fairly daunting. You know, we are some years out from being able to achieve it. And, and you know, we tend to focus our investments on the high-priority assets that are important to visitors. So, you know, things like trails, carriage roads, restrooms, you know, mm-hmm. those are those tend to be the assets that get the most attention. But we have some significant needs that are right under that surface. You know, like, for example, our, our maintenance building at McFarland Hill at our headquarters in Bar Harbor, literally the, the bricks that form that building are turning back to sand. Sure. It has a flat roof. Right. You know, I mean, we're here in, in Maine. What right. good is a flat roof? Uh, that building was built in the 1960s. Um, it desperately needs to be replaced. That's a big, a big effort. Mm. Um, luckily, we're, you know, it appears as though we're getting funding to do design, which will hopefully lead to construction funding. Uh, but, but that's an example of the kind of uh, backlog. You know, our visitor center this year uh, was, was got sort of a, a uh, uh, a renewal to it. Um, it still has some significant problems, but you know that was an example of an investment that we made with entrance fee revenues to help bring that building uh, uh, into a usable condition so that that we can get another, say, five to seven years out of it before mm. we need to replace it. Mm. I'll uh, bring David in in terms of the role of Friends of Acadian supporting in Congress that backlog, but I just want to remind listeners they're tuned to Talk of the Towns this morning. We're speaking with Kevin Schneider, the superintendent of Acadian National Park, Laura Cohen, chief of interpretation at the park, and David McDonald, president of Friends of Acadia. So you look at, David, you look at this backlog as one of the things that you're trying to help Congress understand. Certainly, yeah. Uh, we've got a great delegation here in Maine. Um, our senators and our congressmen and women really understand the importance of Acadia National Park, but they work within a big system, and national parks, I would hope, would be a very strong bipartisan issue. I think it is a bipartisan issue, 
but the funds just have not been there for mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons. Um, so Friends of Acadia is that voice, and we advocate in a way that Kevin and his team can't necessarily. Um, we do so with national partners. We're we, we can't we're not down in Washington more than a handful of times a mm-hmm. year. It's very important also to bring the elected officials up here. Nothing is more effective than taking a walk through the park with. And a, you even had the president here a couple three years, ten years ago, yeah, 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 whatever it was, right, yeah, right. right. But once they have the park experience and are able to bring that back and and have it part of the deliberations, it makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing we try to make the case is that. Donors do want to invest in parks, but they will not be inspired to invest if Congress is disinvesting or or lagging or pulling back. So Friends of Acadia has always um, benefited from this notion of a public-private partnership. Mm -hmm. And the very early projects we did on the carriage roads, on the trails, were our board and donors saying, we'll do this if Congress does this. Mm -hmm. So that type of match or one-to-one and it – that's so the, the way it should work. The, the two programs you've mentioned are so significant. Tell us a little bit more about the uh, carriage roads and the trails. Sure, sure. Well, long before my time, uh, early on sure. actually in Friends of Acadia's tenure, uh, they recognized that the carriage roads were falling into disrepair. Uh, I had a local friend who thought that in his lifetime they would turn into walking trails mm-hmm. um, uh, due to lack of maintenance, lack mm-hmm. of funding, lack of personnel. And so Friends of Acadia took on the project of saying – um, we wanted to raise awareness and have these carriage roads restored. And we said, if Congress would allocate funds to do that, we will set up a fund that will ensure their ongoing maintenance over time. Mm-hmm. So at the time, earmarks were uh, part of how, how Washington operated. And Senator Mitchell and his colleagues were able to get an earmark to get that restoration work done. We then raised $4 million at the time to put aside and ensure that each year going forward, we could make a grant to the park to ensure they didn't fall back into disrepair. So kind of, in the shorthand, it's an endowment for the maintenance of of that set of facilities. And then you did a similar problem. Similar model for the hiking trails uh, five or ten years later. So at the time, it was breaking new ground. A a number of other parks around the country have since followed that model. But again, we don't want to send the message that the public funding from Washington is not important, it's not needed. Um, But sometimes that match and that leverage is just what you need to actually turn the spigot on from right, Washington. Right. So it's a balancing act. And, and Kevin, the trails are, are, I've heard it described as Acadia's trails are the model for the world. How did that happen? Do you have a sense of how that happened? Does it go back to the origins of Acadia and, and some of these trail building groups and so on? Yes, it, it does. In fact, it goes back to prior to the park's establishment. Right. These trails were established in many cases before Acadia National Park was. And, and you know, I'd encourage listeners, next time you're on one of the park's trails, often when you're out there, you don't really notice the trail. Mm-hmm. But next time you're out there, try to notice the trail. Mm-hmm. And, and look at the, the stonework that's out there. Um, it is amazing. Uh, they are nothing short of a work of art. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, many national parks today in this challenge of having more to do with less funding aren't able to maintain that standard of quality and, and craftsmanship on the trails. And thanks to the endowment from Friends of Acadia, we are able to try to do that. Uh, you know, we've got 
trail crew uh, members that are here with us year-round, that have been here for years. Mm. Um, and being able to retain staff like that is only possible thanks to the endowment from Friends of Acadia. And that allows us to really work at a higher level mm. uh, to, to ultimately care for those trails in a more professional way that maintains that historic quality and that integrity. We literally have the trail crew, if they're looking at how to cross a stream, they'll look at the pictures of that trail from 1915 and to see how how were the stones laid out in 1915, and they'll try to maintain that, that sense mm-hmm. of history. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one thing that makes Acadia's trails really unique mm-hmm. in the national park system. Mm. And carriage roads, too. Um, carriage roads are a feature of Acadia that um, most visitors wouldn't understand if they were out in the West, that you wouldn't have a carriage road system. Uh, Laura, have you begun to think about how to interpret the carriage roads as well as allow people to use them? I, I have a little bit. Uh, I have a lot of listening to do as well. Yeah. from uh, the community, my peers, and, and the staff that I work with uh, to learn a little bit. And we do some interpretation on them, talking about the carriage roads and the bridges, uh, both from a, a people-moving perspective, as this was a, a way that people moved across the have moved across the island for, I don't know, almost 100 years now, um, and also from kind of an a architecture and engineering perspective. Um, one of the other things that we spend a lot of time on in, in my division is education, uh, and STEM education is really important now, uh, as is trades mm. education. I think that there's a lot of connections that we can make there uh, with people as, you know, that this is a historical resource, but it's a living historical resource, uh, and we can really learn from that, whether that be learning through trades uh, or understanding the architecture and engineering that went into them. Mm. And, uh, D- David, you've, you, Friends of Acadia has often used young people as a way, uh, both of, as ambassadors, but actually getting work done, especially in the summer season. Talk a little bit about that, and that relates to that notion of trades. Sure, yeah. Our Acadia Youth Conservation Corps uh, is a project that we help fund as part of our Trails Forever project. And each summer we hire about 15, 16 local teenagers who join the trail crew for the Mm -hmm. summer. They learn the trade. uh, They work really hard. Uh, young backs and uh, and um, but terrific work ethic and I had a chance to go out this summer and see some of the work they'd done and it was really inspiring and as we were doing so a visitor stopped and said are you the people who work on these trails thank you you know and it Mm -hmm. you could tell how proud they were of the work and a lot of those teenagers go on to join the trail crew Mm. Uh, some later go on, on in their exactly yep. Yep. yes, or some go on in their college years to work for Friends of Acadia as a summit steward, which is a job that has a bit more visitor interaction uh, and stewardship message. So, it's a great job. It's a hard job. You've got to be there at seven in the morning, sure. and uh, um, but boy, those kids felt ownership of that trail that they had just worked on. So mm. that's one of many youth opportunities that we have that allow folks to 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 get to know their park and and flex their ownership of it and, and their stewardship, too. I, I worked for YCC in a different version um, back in the 70s, and I can still go back to trails that, that our kids worked on and say, you know, we did that, and, and it's, it does make you feel very proud. You've also done something with um, um, teens and electronic media, is that right? Yes, yeah, our Acadia digital media team um, is a little older profile, usually high school or, or college students, um, and we deploy them in the park to think about how to pick up on Laura's earlier comment, how technology can be used to better mm. enhance the visitor experience. And then also to give us content, photos and video, sure. 
to push out some of these stewardship messages right. on social media. Right. So this summer, one of the members of the team put together a sh- very short video on tips for using the Island Explorer. If we're asking folks to use the Island Explorer more, we need to make it easy for them to learn about it sure. and uh, navigate the system. Uh, another example is one of the members of the team worked with the park to really uh, – update and revamp the wildlife information on their website. Turned out no one had looked at that for many, many years. And things are changing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. So being able to update the website and the social media in a way that makes it much more accessible and relevant to particularly a younger demographic is proving to be invaluable to our to our mission and our efforts to get stewardship messages out to visitors mm. at a much wider, easier scale. Kevin, um, David just men- mentioned the Island Explorer. You said you were here with the launch of that. Um, transportation plan is a big topic, um, um, probably all across the nation, but spe- specifically in Acadia. Where is the transportation planning? What's what's next in that process? And, and what impacts are you tr- hoping to have through a new vision of how people get around in the park? Yeah, well, we completed the plan in May uh, after about four years involving multiple rounds of public comment and sort of analysis. And now we're beginning the implementation phase. Mm. Uh, implementation has its own sort of set of challenges and, and um, is going to take some time to, to implement. But a couple of things that we're focused on, one is um, is sort of reimagining a few new park and ride locations in Acadia, uh, one of which is at the Hulse Cove Visitor Center. Um, as I alluded to earlier, uh, the Hulse Cove Visitor Center um, has about 250 parking spaces currently. We really see that uh, doubling uh, in this transportation plan so that we can park more visitors there and then give them a place to hop on the bus, the mm. Island Explorer. Mm. As part of that project, we also want to build a new visitor center. The current visitor center is up about 52 steps. Um, so if your mom or dad... I remember pushed, John Good saying there's a reason for that back when he was superintendent. <laughs> it's to get people out of their cars and having them exercise. So maybe maybe we've gone beyond that. Well, know. you know, if your mom or dad pushing a stroller, um, it's a problem. You sure. know, you're probably not going to sure. get up there with, uh, with the stroller. Um, or if you're just one of the many Americans who just, you know... Sure, Isn't I was into, just, yeah, so, I remember that, though. Well, the other deficiency with that visitor center is there's really nothing educational in it. Oh. There's nothing to describe why Acadia was created as a national park, mm-hmm. what makes this place special or unique. And it's the only parks, it's the only visitor center mm-hmm. uh, in the park, really. So um, really seeing that as a, a new place where people can spend some time, get onto the carriage roads. There's a steep section of the carriage roads there. We think we can realign that um, and, and improve that access there. And then the other major park and ride location is the Gateway Center in Trenton, which is in partnership with the state of Maine, mm-hmm. um, Department of Transportation. And that's really sort of envisioned to be like a regional orientation facility. So what is there to do, in, not just in Acadia, but all the way from Blue Hill to Roosevelt Campobello, you know, and to kind of tell the story about all the things there are to do in this in this region of down east Maine. Um, and, and that's also a place where visitors will be able to leave their cars behind and then hop on the bus to, mm-hmm. to get to key locations in Acadia. We're also looking at um, trying to reduce the size of touring vehicles in the park. We have full-size motor coaches that currently use the park, and they're not able to get up Cadillac Mountain without crossing the double yellow line on several curves or go under our historic bridges Mm. without crossing to the center of the road. And that creates a lot of safety concerns for us. So over uh, through concessions contract, using smaller size uh, touring vehicles like the size of an Ollie's trolley 
or Island Explorer bus uh, that, that then can more navigate uh, mm-hmm. the roads more safely. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a key component of the transportation plan as and well. automobiles, how, how will you help people get out of their automobiles? Um, uh, will there be both encouragement, a carrot and a stick kind of approach? What, what's, what, what do you envision there? Yeah, well, to try to manage parking, we're going to use a reservation system so that you have a timed entry for Cadillac Mountain, Jordan Pond, and Ocean Drive, which are the three most congested locations in Acadia. Uh, so it'll allow visitors to have the certainty of knowing, yes, I'll be able to get a place to park at Jordan Pond um, in association with my lunch, perhaps, or to go for a hike. And they won't waste the time driving there, circling for 45 minutes, sure. getting frustrated, and, and then ultimately driving back to Hull's Cove to, to hop right. on the bus. Right. Um, and so it's really about providing more certainty to visitors and a higher quality experience. We hope to be able to start implementing that reservation system in 2021. It's going to take some, sure. some, you know, some doing to sure. get there because we want to make sure it works really well um, and is a seamless kind of experience. But then, you know, for visitors who don't want to make a reservation or or, uh, or aren't able to get one for whatever reason, you know, having Island Explorer there to take them using things like like Uber or Lyft even or a taxi that that wouldn't require a reservation and would drop you off and wouldn't take up a parking place. Uh, using things like touring tours, you mm-hmm. know, if if visitors want to take a tour with with uh, Ollie's Trolley or National Park Tours, you know, one of our local business partners having the opportunity for that. Um, or if visitors want to, you know, take a, a bike uh, onto Ocean Drive, you know, that wouldn't require a reservation. So, you know, trying to help. Uh, uh, showcase the diversity of ways you can get in and around Acadia. You know, the park is so community-oriented, you can literally go from, you know, downtown Bar Harbor or Northeast Harbor and, and be able to access the park very readily mm-hmm. um, without ever having to get into your car. Right, right. You're tuned to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We're speaking with Kevin Schneider, who is superintendent of Acadia National Park, Laura Cohen, who is Chief of Interpretation, and David McDonald, President of Friends of Acadia. Um, at this point, we'd love to have your phone call uh, and your participation in this program. Um, 1-866-625-9378. Share your experience, your concerns, your questions with our guests this morning. 1-866-625-9378. Um, Kevin, as you, as you put this transportation um, kind of plan together. Um, how did you c- connect with the local communities about about that plan and what, what the impacts might be? It was really an ongoing dialogue over the four-year sort of life of the plan. So we had several public meetings. We did um, information sessions at local libraries throughout Mount Desert Island um, where, you know, we just had a conversation with mm-hmm. folks and, and folks had a chance to ask questions. Um, Thanks to Friends of Acadia, Friends of Acadia helped get the word out on their on their through their social media uh, sites. You know, we had something like more than ten thousand views on Friends of Acadia's website of those library sessions, um, and so you know, it was really a community conversation over a period of time with you know sort of three evolutions, prime evolutions of our planning. You know, at the very beginning where we call scoping, where it's what are the issues? What are the alternatives to having a conceptual alternatives to then having alternatives? And at each round in the process, we invited the public to, mm. to comment. Mm. David, how did how did Friends of Acadia participate in this process? What were some of the concerns that your members had? Um, are, are they happy with the, 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 the plan that emerged? What's the what, what's your take on it? Sure. This has been a high priority for us for a number of years. So in the first place, we strongly urge the park to go through this process. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's not 
to be taken lightly. There's so much on their plate already to undertake this was a big lift. Mm -hmm. So we pushed a bit on that. We were thrilled when the park undertook the process. And then, as Kevin said throughout, we did try to um, have an open eye and an open ear as to what concerns were on the mind of the community. What we found pretty quickly is almost everyone agreed with the problem, with the challenge that the park faced. No one said, this isn't a problem. So then it became a question of the, the solution. And what Friends of Acadia really appreciates about the plan is that it's adaptive. It, it laid out some strategies that we're going to try. And if you need to dial them up or dial them back or try something different, it allows that. And I think that's only that's the only way to go mm-hmm. with a park like Acadia mm-hmm. that, as we've said several times, is so intertwined with the community. Um, so we're very pleased. We commented formally on the plan. Uh, we supported it. I think there's parts we thought they could have gone further, uh, but we were supportive of having that happen perhaps over time as we learn more about, for example, how a reservation system works. Mm-hmm. And let's face it, I mean, something like the Island Explorer, it's going to have to grow and, and, and add buses and add routes, and that's going to take time. That's going to take years uh, mm-hmm. to develop the funding and the infrastructure to do that. So, um, But other parks have gone down this route. My, um, I, I haven't visited the West very much, but I did go to Grand Canyon, and you're pretty much you're forced into a parking lot, and then you get on a bus. So you, you've got that possibility with the Trenton uh, Gateway Center that as that, this gets more crowded, you are going to be able to create um, more of a draw or an incentive to use that facility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. And and I think, you know, we want to make sure that visitation to the park can can grow over time. It's it's going to grow. Sure. You know, I, I saw some numbers just this last week about potential visits to national parks in the future. We're going to continue to grow. And so we want to be able to do that in a sustainable fashion mm. and provide a high-quality experience. As David said, you know, the Island Explorer is a really important piece of this puzzle. Um, but it's free to visitors, but it's not free to operate. Uh, and so we've got to be able to make sure we've got a sustainable path to be able to do that. The Island Explorer is the largest transit system in the state of Maine when it's fully up and running. Sure. 600,000 passengers a year. They had their big, busiest August ever this past August. Mm. So, you know, it's a really important part of our solution. Well, let's take a phone call. I believe Michael is on the line from Town Hill. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Yeah, hey, guys. Thanks a lot for talking about these things. Um, as a small business uh, owner in uh, Bar Harbor, I'm curious how the plan is going to incorporate educational and other uh, uh, businesses that are are running uh, their business in the park and around the park. If you could just answer that, I'd love to hear what your answer is to that. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much for your call. Questions about um, how how do you get the word out, and then what are the impacts likely to be about small businesses? And Michael, I believe, has a tour, uh, a nature tour guide company. Yeah, thanks for your thanks for your call, Michael. Uh, we certainly heard that during the the planning process, and we want to make sure that those kinds of businesses, whether you're a climbing guide or a, or a or a bird outfitter, uh, you know that that you have the opportunity to still take people into the park and provide those high quality experiences. We we see those businesses really as partners, and and they're providing a higher level experience for visitors because it's a it becomes a learning experience when mm-hmm. you when you when you go out with a tour like Michael's. Uh, and so, yes, we have uh, uh, we've thought about that. 
um, we're still kind of putting the the details into exactly how all that will work, but um, but we imagine having some kind of sort of uh, system where they would be able to bypass the reservation or have an sort of automatic reservation based at the beginning of the year. They wouldn't be sort of competing for the same set of reservations that the that the general public would. One eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight, or call locally at four six nine zero five zero zero to participate in our conversation about Acadia National Park, its mission, its programs, and challenges. Um, Kevin, you mentioned um, the Gateway Center as a possibility of, of helping people see the, the resources of the region, um, including um, the, the far-flung units of Acadia. And I understand you've got a, a St. Croix connection. Not St. Croix in the Caribbean, but St. Croix in, in a very special part of Maine. Yeah, St. Croix International Historic Site. Uh, it's the site of the first French exploration to North America, um, a fairly tragic site where mm-hmm. about half of the party perished during the winter as they tried to uh, settle on St. Croix Island. And that's up near Calais, Maine. It's a fabulous place uh, to go see, a powerful part of our nation's history, and, and in particular, uh, French-Canadian history. Um, and and uh, it, it only gets about ten or 12,000 visitors a year. So if you haven't checked it out, uh, make a trip up to Callis and, and see it. It's a, it's a, it's a very contemplative uh, site. We're seeing lots of, 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 of innovation in the private sector to um, encourage people to um, see um, the coast of Maine. And I'm thinking of Gil Butler's efforts in the, the Bold Coast and understand he's, he's, he's working in the, in the Katahdin region as well. Do you see this as a trend that's national? Is this happening more, more than where the private sector is putting money into Acadia-like experiences and trails? They're certainly used, trying to use the Acadia standard. And we had the example of Skudik, where um, a private investor helped create the campground that's over there. Is this a trend? Yeah, this is happening. Uh, we're fortunate to have um, a, a place here where we have people like Mr. Butler um, or the Skudik donors who are have been very generous and created these incredible uh, gifts to our nation. Um, and and uh, I, I think we're, we're fortunate. I mean, Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument, another gift to our, our country. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, like Acadia, 100 years later, uh, Katahdin, we're going to be looking back on this and saying, what an amazing story this is, mm-hmm. uh, to have this protected land come into um, ownership for our entire nation uh, is 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 really important and I suppose the the uh, the story of Acadia is really inspirational because it's different in terms of how it's created just if you could thumbnail sketch of, of how was Acadia created yeah Acadia was the first park in our nation that was created by philanthropy mm-hmm. you know private citizens coming together to realize that Mount Desert Island and the coast of Maine really was special and that that if something wasn't done to preserve these lands, it would just become individual, you know, summer homes, uh, summer cottages. And so uh, people who were very foresightful, you know, John D. Rockefeller Jr., uh, George Dorr, Charles Eliot, uh, these people came together with a vision of something that was much bigger than themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they could have afforded to to do anything with those lands, but instead they chose to to make a gift to our nation 
And you know, now 103 years later, um, three and a half million people, cumulatively more than 100 million people have experienced Acadia National Park. Mm. Uh, what an incredibly foresightful, uh, selfless gift that was that was given. Mm. Uh, the uh, notion of, of a park visitor having some ownership of Acadia, knowing its story, knowing its resources. Um, do interpretive programs kind of create a sense of ownership or uh, ethos of taking care of our environment? Yeah, that's our hope. Uh, you know, our goal is that uh, there's there's a lot of different ways that the National Park Service works to preserve, preserve and protect our resources. But the goal in interpretation education is to create these meaningful experiences that lead to these lifelong connections uh, so that people who understand the resource better, understand the park better, can then work to protect them. Uh, so that, that really is our goal with the programs that we, we do. Uh, we hope that when we get people talking to us, talking to each other, and learning from the parks that they can start to develop a deeper understanding and a deeper connection to the place. Uh, and then they carry that forward with them. You know, a lot of times, particularly in a, in a place with such heavy visitation, where sometimes maybe that connection doesn't happen until reflection is they go home and they experience, whether it's a state or a local park or a national park in their own area, that they're able to sort of carry that with them throughout the rest of their lives. Um, and so that that definitely is a, is a goal and something that we work towards. I don't think that it's ever anything that can be forced. And sometimes even our job is to get out of the way and let that happen. And a lot of times the, the conversation is uh, between the park and the individual or the park and the group. Uh, and so our job is to sort of step back and let that happen on its own. Um, and, uh, you know, being able to decide when and where the right experiences need to be planned to make that happen. That's that's really what we try to do. Mm. So so in my childhood, I can think of uh, anti-litter campaigns mm. and mm-hmm. Smokey the Bear being kind of symbols of, yes. of taking care. Things are a lot more sophisticated. What are some of the lessons that you're helping people understand about uh, the, the Acadia and other natural resources? Are, are there particular things that you're, you're uh, mindful of? Air quality, water quality, um, what else? Yeah, air quality and water to- quality are great ones. You know, obviously a big one that we're, we're confronting is climate change and uh, getting people to understand sort of the, the, ever, uh, the, the way that the resource is going to change in the future and, and how they can or cannot contribute uh, to that happening, whether that's a part of their visit or, again, as part of their daily life lives. Um, I think a lot of times, too, it's it's a little bit simpler than that. It's sort of just a basic understanding of our natural world or our history and, and uh, the, the kind of fundamentals of that. I think more and more we see a lot of particularly kids today that spend more time in front of the screen than they do outdoors um, and uh, being able to have these sort of introductory experiences for people that may not be necessarily comfortable doing that on their own. Uh, you know, an example, we work um, with our partner over at um, the Scudic Institute with doing electronic field trips where we'll be talking uh, from the seacoast of Maine to students in Kansas. Uh, so that is, is um, you know, a great experience for kids that may never get to see the ocean, mm. but can perhaps interact with us and start to understand maybe what they're learning in school, but in a much more tangible way. Mm. Mm. I believe we have a call. That caller called one 625 9378 David from Brooklyn is on the line. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Hi, thanks. I've got both. Uh, I wanted to comment on the beautiful piece of land that Acadia is and, uh, you know, thank the the park people for the recent opportunity I, I had uh, with my wife to take our uh, wheelchair handicapped aunt 
all the way to the very tippy top of Cadillac Mountain on a wheelchair, on a nicely paved uh, wheelchair, past the uh, zigzagging back and forth, like the wood zigzag on the cars pass up the mountain. And uh, it was a very wonderful experience for her. Uh, and I, uh, I have a question to do with, uh, I know that when uh, folks with, a lot of land make a gift of it to the state they get some sort of a, a tax write-off for that gift and i wondered whether you're aware if there's in the context of the uh, the black hills uh, state park whether there's any similar uh tax write-off available to people well to people who would own land who would give it back to the natives Great question, David. We'll see if we've got an answer here with our guests. Uh, thanks again for your call. So um, this this notion of, of uh, uh, native land, it's all originally native land, I suppose, reparations and so on. But, um, David, have you got a, a, a thread for this story? I can't offer specific tax right. advice on how that might work. The, the premise is that when land that is privately owned is is donated to either a government agency or a 501c3 nonprofit organization for public good, the tax code recognizes that as, as an outright donation. So there's a variety of ways that, that that kind of gift could be structured, and it would depend on the entity that owns it now, the right. entity they're giving it to, right. what kind of um, – benefits might be available. Now, it's important to point out those benefits never take the place of full compensation for the property. They're, right. they're trying to encourage right. uh, and offer an incentive for conservation. I don't know the details right. of that transaction I, and, and how it might be set up but, uh, that, that would offer likely, that sweetener in all likelihood. There are likely um, people who can answer that exactly. question. And yeah. your former yeah. organization, yeah. Maine Coast Heritage yeah. Trust, is a good mm-hmm. example of that. And there may be similar organizations in the, in the Black Hills mm-hmm. area. Mm-hmm. Thanks again for the question. We have another caller from um, uh, Lemoyne. Uh, go ahead, Frank, with your question or comment, please. Yeah, I, uh, I thought the park was trying to move toward buses. And then I hear on the news about three or four weeks ago, about Cadillac Mountain, you might expand the parking lot, which kind of, I didn't understand why you'd expand the parking lot, but you're trying to move toward eliminating cars. And I would also would like to make a comment about the Trenton Depot. It's been there, I don't know, three years now, maybe, or maybe longer, I'm not sure. And there should be a sign up there. I mean, I know, and people who live around here know what's there, but people riding by, they don't know that you can park your car in there. Nobody knows that who are coming from Ohio, there's no sign that's there that says you can park your car here and get on a bus and enjoy yourselves. So, so anyway, so Great. put a sign up. That doesn't take much planning and years in advance thinking. Great. Well, yeah. well, we'll see if we can get some answers to your questions. Thanks for calling, Frank. Yeah, thanks for the comment and, and question. So um, the transportation plan does not expand parking at a place like Cadillac or in any of the historically significant parts of Acadia. So he, you may, he may have understood something about the visitor center, but the visitor center is in Hulls Cove. That's right. Right. That's right. right. So we're expanding parking at Hulls Cove, not not at the summit. There's really nowhere to expand it at the summit of Cadillac, right. even right. if we wanted to. Uh, and so we hope that we'll be able to provide better transit service to the top of Cadillac, more frequent tour options for visitors to get up to the top of Cadillac, but, uh, but not necessarily an expansion of parking. And, and Kevin, in the transportation plan, 
it was deliberately looked at, should a strategy be to expand parking throughout the park? And the answer was no. That's, that's, right. that's not a sustainable strategy, and, and it was rejected as, as an option. That's exactly right, David. Mm-hmm. And then with regards to Trenton, um, yes, you can park your car currently in Trenton at the Gateway Center. Um, there is bus service from that location, and, and it, it doesn't – it's not well advertised. So I, I think, Frank, you're, you're, you're correct. Um, I, what we want to do in the future is construct an orientation center there that would be operated in partnership with the state, for example, uh, with the park, um, that would help orient people to the park, first of all. You know, okay, hop on the bus from here if, if you want, leave your car behind and, and you know, um, uh, provide a place to kind of touch, touch visitors first uh, before they even come to Acadia. Now, I think when you think about sort of the demographics of our visitation, um, the Gateway Center in Trenton is going to work for some of our visit visitors. But if you're staying overnight, for example, on Mount Desert Island, it might not be where you're, you're not going to, you know, you pay want, for a... You want to park where you're sleeping. Right. right. That's right. Ideally. Right. right. Or if you've got a vacation rental on Mount Desert Island, for example, that's where Hull's Cove kind of comes into mm-hmm. play. Mm-hmm. But the Gateway Center in Trenton works great for people who are staying in Ellsworth. We're seeing a strong growth in lodging in Ellsworth or off-island, even vacation rentals off Mount Desert Island. The Gateway Center becomes really relevant for the, that constituency or demographic, becomes relevant for day visitors. You know, maybe maybe someone lives in Ellsworth and wants to come to the park for the day. Um, and so it could be useful for those folks. It's useful for commuters, people who work on the island. And so as part of the... Um, development of this orientation center, we're also looking at improving and expanding the bus service because that's really part and parcel is that, you know, you want to have, if you're going to park there, you want to more or less have a nonstop bus to your destination, maybe to Hull's Cove or to Jordan Pond House, uh, where then you can, you know, have your park experience. Mm-hmm. So Acadia, as as we've um, already alluded to, is is intermixed with the communities um, that that uh, inhabit Mount Desert Island, the Scudic Peninsula, Isla Ho, Saint Croix, um, or a lot of community connections. What would you say about the the the, the, the future for that that connection? What does it look like? You've mentioned the fact that um, uh, visitation in Ellsworth is expanding because it's probably crowded on Mount Desert Island. Is that going to happen uh, more and more? Well, I, I do think a rising tide floats all boats, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, tourism is a big piece of the economy in the state of Maine. Uh, you know, we we are we scenery is our product here, and uh, and the park is the product. Uh, so, yeah, I, I do think that um, you know this is really important that we that we think about how do we how do we serve these audiences? How do we you know there are parts of the Bold Coast in Maine that offer the experience Acadia may have offered 75 years ago. It's a different kind of experience. Mm. Uh, but you know for folks maybe they want to on a week long vacation spend a few days in the park, spend a day on the Bold Coast, mm. you know, and and really learn about all there is to do in this region. It's a very special special place. Mm. David, how would you, I mean, you kind of your connection to the community having grown up um, um, here and then your work with Maine Coast Heritage. How would you characterize the connection to local communities in Acadia? We, I mean, it's part of how Friends of Acadia got started, Mm -hmm. and I think it's only growing stronger. Um, I think the kind of input and participation you saw in the transportation plan, I think the centennial celebration that was really a Mm community-driven celebration, Mm -hmm. um, Friends of Acadia helped organize it, but it really was grassroots. Um, And I remind people all the time, I mean, there are so many different partners to this park. I mean, the local school systems, the libraries, Mm. um, the colleges. You know, we're doing a lot of work with the University of Maine. 
hundreds of businesses, you know, are mm-hmm. members and support the park. So I think there's a really strong appreciation for the park. Um, a lot of people have a different stake in it. So there's no one storyline. Right. They're very, very diverse. But but it really is a common denominator that people come back to again and again. And I, you know, I think that's great. I think that's a great foundation to build upon. And I think the future protection of Acadia, just like its founding, mm. is absolutely the community is instrumental to that. Right. So. Well, as we wrap up, um, perhaps there are things about Acadia that continue to inspire you. Um, David, what continues to inspire you about Acadia? Being out in the resource, uh, getting out of my office, you know, away from my desk, and, and again, seeing people experience it in different ways, mm-hmm. uh, ways that I've never thought of. Mm-hmm. You know, I often tell a story. I saw a person surfing at Sand Beach in the middle of the winter, and, and that person was so elated by their time in the park. So it, it has a huge impact on people and, um, uh, and on me as well. Laura, what continues to to inspire you about Acadia? Uh, well, being, being a week and a half into this job, pretty much everything. <laughs> uh, you know, it's hard to t- – Kevin has to tamp down my <laughs> excitement at some points in time. Uh, but I, I will say, you know, one of the stories that inspires me since that's sort of my job is I'm really fascinated by sort of these or- early women rusticators, the women that were hiking up these trails in – Their long skirts. In their long skirts and heels and, you know, really sort of early adventurers. And it's a story that I would love to, to learn more about. Great. Kevin, what continues to inspire you about Acadia? Well, I, I, I think, uh, you know, I think in my job, what inspires me really is working with partners like Friends of Acadia and seeing uh, Friends of Acadia cultivate stewardship for the park and cultivate people to care about it, to to, to give their time as a volunteer, uh, to give their, their money when that's appropriate. Um, you know, that really is inspiring to see that commitment. And it, and it just goes to show how deeply personal this place is for people, that they're willing to, to devote themselves to it like that. Um, inspires me as a manager. Mm-hmm. I'd say what, you know, also personally recharges my battery, as David said, is just getting out in the park mm-hmm. and getting out on the carriage roads, getting out on a trail. Um, that is really important to my psyche. When when work becomes stressful, uh, it's getting back out into the park and being inspired by the resources itself. Mm. Well, thank you all for being here on Talk of the Towns this morning. We've come to the end of the hour. Be sure and join us from 10 to 11 on the second Friday morning of each month for Talk of the Towns. Podcasts of our programs can be found in the archive section of the WERU website. If you've got comments or suggestions for topics, please email us at news at weru.org. And tune in to our companion program, Coastal Conversations with Natalie Springle of the University of Maine Sea Grant, 10 to 11 on the fourth Friday morning of each month. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balmain House Island music recording. Thanks again to our guests in the studio, Kevin Snyder, Superintendent of Acadia National Park, and Laura Cohen, Chief of Interpretation, along with David McDonald, President of Friends of Acadia. Thanks to those who called in with their questions and experience. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. <laughs>